In September of this year, Colorado Governor Jared Polis announced the creation of a new state park encompassing Fisher's Peak near Trinidad, Colorado. Fisher's Peak is the highest peak in the United States that you can find east of Interstate I-25. Now, state parks aren't a new idea to the state of Colorado, with this latest being the state's 42nd. But each park found in Colorado is managed differently, and with a different story to tell. The way these parks are managed over time change along with the people who use them. West of Fort Collins rests State Forest State Park. About 100 square miles in size, it has been used for resource extraction for decades, as well as for many forms of recreation. Today, researchers with CSU's Public Lands History Center are working with land agencies to take a look not just at the natural resources we can find within public parks, but cultural resources as well. With a new park coming soon to Colorado, I wanted to see what we can learn from other state parks, which are often managed for many different purposes. To find out more, I sat down with Ariel Schnee, Program Manager for the Public Lands History Center. I'm Ty Betts with the Office of the Vice President for Research, where we examine the research taking place at CSU and the impact it's having on the world. This is The State of Research. Thanks for meeting with me today, Ariel. To start, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your position and also how do you enjoy public lands? Yeah, definitely. I am the program manager for the Public Lands History Center. That means that I uh, coordinate and take care of all of our public programming. So we run a speaker series called the American West Program. Uh, we actually have an upcoming edition of that on November 7th from 7 to 9 p.m. on the 50th anniversary of the Alcatraz occupation um, and the beginning of the Red Power Movement. So that's going to be really cool. Um, I also coordinate our research projects. I develop uh, research project leads with our partner agencies. We tend to work with a really broad variety of different land management agencies, ranging from everything to private landholders to we've done projects with NASA. We've done projects with the U.S. Forest Service, and we do a lot of projects with the national parks as well. But for this one, this focuses on a, uh, a project that we recently did with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And do you have a favorite location or public land that you like to visit? Um, I am a huge fan of State Forest State Park, actually. I think Perfect. it's one of our really underutilized pieces of public land. It is so close to Fort Collins, and you still feel like you're about um, a million miles away, deep in the woods. Um, it's just such a cool place. I've stayed at the uh, at the yurts on uh, on the State okay. Forest State Park. Those are really awesome. Yeah. They're a very like kind of comfortable camping experience. You only have to like snowshoe a little bit of the ways into the backcountry to get to them, and it's it's very easy to stay there, and it's pretty comfortable too. Would you mind like painting a picture of what State Forest State Park is when you go oh, up sure. Poudre Canyon and you're headed? towards Cameron Pass, what yeah. is it like when you get there? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think probably a lot of people are going to know about the route, but you kind of start out going up the Poudre Canyon and you pass by Ted's Place on the plains mm -hmm. yeah. and you start heading towards the mountains and um, it's a really dramatic kind of setting where you're kind of on this long, slow approach. You've probably got like a cyclist or two like coming up the canyon with you. Um, you have to have a downloaded playlist on Spotify because <laughs> you're on Absolutely, you are definitely going to lose your cell phone <laughs> yeah. service. Um, but you start kind of getting into the mountains and 
sort of the world closes in on you. You start to be driving next to kind of the the creek that runs down the center of the canyon and the road starts to get really windy. And you get the sense that you're kind of going on an adventure, right? Like yeah. you're going into the mountains. Um, and as you kind of climb the canyon, things kind of start to open up a little bit. And then you kind of reach the top of Cameron Pass and things start to like kind of, you get to relax a little bit as the driver. You don't have to be worrying about those like hairpin turns. And then you uh, you keep on going a little bit past the absolute top of the pass. And that's when you get to State Forest State Park. So for this research project, who are you working with and what were they looking for from the Public Lands History Center? I mean, I guess I could start by giving you a little bit of a background on how we got the project. That'd be perfect. So we've been working with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. This is our second year of our partnership with them. And um, they are undergoing this big push right now to develop detailed management plans for each state park in Colorado. So this is part of a pretty long-term collaboration between us and the folks at CPW. Uh, our part of it as the Public Lands History Center is to create something called a stewardship management chapter for okay. cultural resources. So what that is, is a big, long document. The one that we prepared for State Forest State Park is about like 90 pages long with everything. But that includes um, a historical context of the state of the state park that we're working in. It includes a list of cultural resources in that area. So cultural resources are anything from landscapes that have been affected by human activity like logging or grazing or anything like that. It includes historic structures that may be on the, on the state park's property. And then it also includes um, things like linear features. So in State Forest State Park, we also looked at the Michigan Ditch Dam. We looked at the Michigan Reservoir. And we also looked at a bunch of their um, camping developments as well. Uh, and we give them uh, recommendations on how to manage those as well as contact information for other people and professionals that they might consider reaching out to if they have kind of a specific need for a particular resource. One of the members of this research team was Craig Summers, who was able to speak to me about the history of this park and what makes it so worth learning about, as well as what sort of things they were looking to bring to the attention of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. So thanks for joining me today, Craig. And Ariel was able to give us a, a debrief of what CPW was asking you to do with your research. But before we get into that, I'd love to sort of tease out the history of what's now State Forest State Park and sort of how it came to be. So first off, who owns State Forest State Park and what is their purpose with that land? Yeah, so the State Forest State Park is actually a piece of land that's owned by the Colorado State Land Board. And the land board has owned that land um, since uh, about 1939, and that's the time when they um, received the land from the federal government. Um, and at the time, <clears throat> at the time, the state land board, um, which is a which is a state agency responsible for um, managing state lands, primarily for for the public interest, but specifically for um, public education programs. Um, and so since 1939, the land board has um, owned this land and uh, with the goal of generating revenue for, for, for certain public benefits, for in, schools, in particular school. Yeah. Schools, um, there's, some other, there's some other areas where they um, manage, manage the money for, um, but education has been the primary goal. 
Awesome. And the land itself didn't used to be just this tract of land west of Fort Collins. It used to be sort of scattered all throughout the state. And how did they consolidate that into now what is now State Forest State Park? So if we go back to if we go back a little bit in time to 1876 when Colorado became a state, um, at that time, as part of the Constitution, there was created a state board of land commissioners, and the function of that board of land commissioners was to manage lands that the federal government uh, upon st- that the federal government had granted to the state upon statehood. Um, now those lands. Um, were distributed in the form of a, a grid across the across the state, and this is true of all states in the of the of the American West. Um, they were divided up in a grid into thirty six one mile sections, um, um, and within each one of those thirty six mile grids, sections sixteen and thirty six. I believe were reserved for the states, and um, and in this case, when Colorado became a state, the land board was then responsible for managing those sections 16s and 36 for okay. public benefit. Um, <clears throat> and the land board, um, I think, one of their main goals was to manage for uh, the purposes of education. Which I imagine is hard when they're scattered sort of randomly all throughout the state and not huge pieces of land either. So at the time, so at the time that wasn't an issue. So those 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 one mile sections would you know potentially become um, the site of a school in a particular township okay. in, a, in a rural community. Um, what became <clears throat> problematic was later on, um, later on in the 20th century, like around the 1920s and 30s. Once the state was fairly settled, those rural communities were fairly settled, the, um, the land board um, did still maintain these scattered, a few scattered pieces of land, um, but they weren't all developed or, u- or you know, being utilized. Um, what was also going on at that time is that the, <clears throat> the federal government was reserving lands um, across the country for forests. Um, and some of those forest lands, um, it just so happened, would engulf these those remaining section 16s and 36s across the state. And so, you know, by the 19, probably in the 1920s, uh, the state land board started to look for ways to consolidate those holdings that were scattered all around the state into something, into a single holding that um, would be more valuable to the state, and I don't. I'm not sure whose idea it was, but um, for some time the state had its eye on a contiguous piece of land in North Park, and um, and they were interested in making a trade with the Forest Service. So a lot of those other, a lot of scattered pieces of land that the state owned were within national forest areas. So it made a lot of sense for the state to trade those scattered lands within the forest to the Forest Service in exchange for a continuous piece of forest land somewhere else. So once the state land board got this cohesive piece of land, why do they want to do that and how do they plan on earning revenue from it for public benefit? I think what the state board, the state land board had in mind was 
um, finding a piece of land that was rich in natural resources. Um, at the time, in the 1920s and 30s, um, there was quite a bit of demand, both locally and nationally, for timber resources, um, for for other forms of extractive, um, other forms of extraction like mining for coal and and ores. Um, and so the <clears throat> I think all along the state land board had in mind a piece of contiguous land rich in natural resources. Um, so you know if we just look at the landscape of the state park today, it's in a fairly n- area of rich natural resources. It encompasses um, quite a bit of forest. It also encompasses grazing lands. Um, it it does have the potential for some mineral extraction. Um, though that's not been the focus of the land. Um, but but you can you can get the sense that natural resources were, were where the value was located. So Ariel mentioned that CPW approached the Public Lands History Center asking for some help on a management plan update that they were working on. So what did they ask you to help out with? Yeah, so we were contracted to help the park better understand their historic and cultural resources. And um, in this case... Um, we were we helped to write a stewardship chapter on cultural resources, and cultural resources are basically everything to do with past human development that has taken place over time that we can now use in the present to help learn from. So, for example, the state park has a lot of history related to um, logging and timber. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there used to be um, several um, logging towns uh, located in the park, which are no longer there, um, but they have a very unique history, a cultural history that helps us understand a certain period in history about what it was like to live on the land and how people, what people's experience was like at that time. And um, so part of the work that we did was to help the park identify those resources and, um, and then to uh, explain the significance or importance of those resources. Okay. It helps to preserve them and make sure that they're not lost to time? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we want to preserve those things. One, because they are a source of knowledge and information about the past uh, that's useful. Um, but also they serve as opportunities for educating the public about um, about their significance and their importance and their purpose. So so let me, sorry, let me just expand on a little bit. So yeah. it's twofold. So land managers... Um, we, we preserve we want to preserve these kinds of resources for land managers um, so that they can understand how to better manage the land over time. Um, but we also want to preserve these places and ideas and resources as opportunities for for teaching the public about um, about the history of a place. So what did the history of this area look like before the United States seized control over the area? What did the landscape look like and how are, how are people using it? Yeah, I think, um, well, first you raise a, a, I think you allude to an important point that um, there is there is a long history of use 
and inhabitation to this area that predates and precedes not just uh, the United States, but also other European nations. Um, so there's obviously a, a continental history that includes um, prehistoric cultures and people um, all across the continent, um, but in particular in this area, um, we do have evidence of people inhabiting uh, the North Park area about dating as far back as about 5500 BC. Um, uh, we, we don't have a completely clear picture of what life was like for those people and specifically, but we do know that, um, in the high mountain areas, it was, it was kind of like a convergence zone. It was, mm. it was a meeting. It was, it was a place where people migrated from, from lower in the plains, from the foothills, you know, to the east, but also from the, um, the Western slope and the great basin area. Um, you know, once, once the climate changed and the glaciers of this high country melted, um, we do find evidence of more people moving through the landscape and using it, um, in, in ways to not just sustain themselves, um, physically, but also to, but also in terms of their, their cultural development and in terms of their, under, their, their spiritual understanding, um, and their relationship to the landscape. Um, it's, um, it's not until, you know, more recently we know that the, there are different tribes that are affiliated with this place, particularly North Park, that would be the Ute would be one, um, group of people who, um, have a significant history in this place. Um, and that, um, we don't have a, again, we don't have a lot of recorded documents really until the 19th century. But if we look to Ute, if we look to Ute history in particular, oral history, um, they, they view themselves as inhabitants of this place for a very long time. So it's clear this land is a lot more than just the natural resources and has a long and rich history. So how do we manage for those aspects of the park? Um, yeah, I think I think with managing cultural resources, there's is, there's kind of three three main steps, three main important aspects: um, identification, preservation, and interpretation. Um, so before you can understand the importance of a resource, you first have to go out and identify what what was there. Um, Sounds like a fun job. Um, yeah, that can be fun. Um, and in the case of the state park, in case of state forest, state park, um, they had a they had a fairly good sense of what their cultural resources are. Um, although, I think I think we helped them identify a few others that maybe they were not aware of. But the first step the first step is really identif- identifying all of the resources um, that exist um, within the within the landscape. Um, and so what we did for the park was um, we specifically surveyed some some areas that um, had previously not been studied very closely. So we studied um, at least three different areas, one being the Michigan Ditch area. So in terms of a cultural resource, the park obviously knows that there's a ditch there. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe what they weren't quite so aware of is its 
cultural significance to our understanding about how people have used the land over time. So currently, the ditch is very active, and it's maintained and managed by the city of Fort Collins. So this is an irrigation ditch? It's a diversion ditch. Okay, to bring water to the city of Fort water. Collins. To bring water, yeah. Okay. And so it's a really important piece of, it's a really important um is a really important utility for the city of Fort Collins. Um, they may not see it quite so much as a cultural resource as they do a um, resource for utilities. But when we think of it as a cultural resource, um, it takes on a different kind of meaning. It, it becomes a place that teaches us about the past and how people lived and understood their place within the landscape. And... Um, as historians, we think that's important um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, as I managed, as I mentioned, it's that two-part, it's that two-piece, two-part equation again. One, it can help present-day land managers kind of understand by understanding the history of a place, they can better manage the resources today. So, understanding how and why we use water in particular ways can be really useful for management practices today. The other part of that twofold part is again, educating the public about the history of these places is is also another um, important aspect of man- maintaining and interpreting cultural resources. So back to your original question. So how can we how can we help parks better manage their cultural resources? Yeah. So one, helping them identify these things. So they were not completely aware of the historic significance of the ditch. And the ditch has multiple components. It's a five and a half mile long ditch. Parts of it have been rehabilitated over time, but parts of it are actually quite old and original. There's some old piping that's still in use that's original, um, and it dates back to uh, the early 20th century, so I think the early 1900s. There are also some um, buildings and structures that are original that have been that the that the city of Fort Collins uses, and in fact, they have actually maintained and preserved them, um, which is kind of a bonus um, that they've been such good stewards of those places. But in terms of the park CPW, um, I'm not sure that they were fully aware of its historical significance, um, and so that's one of the reasons why we spent some time surveying it. I feel like it's easy to overlook the historical significance of something like the Michigan Ditch, considering Fort Collins is still using it today. Yeah. It's easy to look past some of those things. Yeah. Um, so identification is one part of it. Preservation, which would be to um, maintain these places as best we, you know, as best we can um, to prevent to, pre- to prevent their loss, basically to prevent yeah. their loss. Um, through damage, through through the passage of time, um, and so we we also we help the we help the park managers understand the condition of their cultural resources and their historic resources, um, so that they can make better decisions about how best to maintain those um, structures. Um, along those lines, um, there's quite a bit of history about um, earlier about uh, indigenous communities and cultures that have inhabited North Park and the landscape of the state of what is now the state park um their presence is is not so visible currently but that doesn't mean that this place isn't still um one important to those people today 
but also um, played an important and significant role in in other people's histories. And so there are there are ways that those stories can be interpreted, and so we help make recommendations for how the state parks can do that. Yeah, and speaking of interpretation, you know, I bet going up to Poudre and stopping in at the Moose Visitor Center before reaching State Forest State Park and learning about some of these cultural resources really kind of changes your experience once you're out there. Yeah, definitely. I think so. I think I think interpretation has an important role to play in shaping our perception of place um, and thinking about um, our place within it today. Well, thanks for talking with me today. I'm excited to go out to State Forest State Park now, knowing a little bit more about how it came to be. Yeah, for sure. It's a cool place. Every time I go there, I find something new um, to do and, uh, f- and really enjoy learning more about it every time I go there. I think it's easy to only take into consideration the natural elements surrounding us when we visit these parks like State Forest State Park. But it's important to recognize the many ways humans have interacted with this land throughout time. And without historians working with land agencies like CPW, I think a lot of stories and ways to understand public places could easily be forgotten about. To find out more about the many areas of research that PLHC is involved with, visit publiclands.colestate.edu. Thanks for listening to the State of Research, and look for more episodes to play, maybe even on the next drive to your favorite national or state park.